So, uh, have any of y'all ever heard somebody say there are two things in the world that God is not making any more of? He's not making any more time, and he's not making any more land. God's not making any more time, and God's not making any more land. So, uh, I sat down to start prepping this sermon and we're going to be in Revelation chapter 21, verses really just one. And as I started reading it, I noticed, and all of my commentaries uh, noticed, that there is one little phrase right at the end of verse one, and we're going to read it in just a second that none of the commentators knew what to do with. Uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Now, we're, we're going to stand and, and read it together in a second. But there's this phrase at the end of verse 1, also there was no more sea. And it seems so out of place. It seems so random. Because of all the other things that are going on, we've been going through Revelation and we've seen all kinds of, of, let's be honest, y'all, weird stuff. Weird, excuse me, weird stuff in this book. And I have made a lot of use of the most powerful three words in the pastor that they taught me at seminary, which is, I don't know. There's a lot in Revelation I don't understand. And any pastor who tells you he understands all of it is lying to you, basically. I'm just telling you. But nobody, and I mean nobody, in the theological academic world understands why John decided to put there was no more sea right there. And I spent the majority of this week trying to figure out what I think he was getting at. And most everybody picked one of several things and laid it down. And, and I couldn't help but think, y'all, I've been reading, I'm, I'm not that old, I'm 31, but I've been reading books written by John long enough to know that it's one of the hallmarks of this biblical author that he'll say something and mean three or four things at one time in that one word. So I said, okay, what are all these things? So I read and I researched and I called to the pastors and the result of which is going to be what you, you hear today. So let's stand together and let's read Revelation 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Father, I pray that you bless this time that we have together, Lord. I hope you help, help us to value what you're doing in this new creation. Help us to see it, be excited about it, be encouraged by it. Because that's the whole reason you wrote this book. You wrote this book, you, you inspired this book of John to encourage your people living in a broken, fallen creation. So, Lord, use this book to that end this morning and encourage us and have us look forward to a world that doesn't suffer like this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can sit down. So, there's, there's two things that God's not making any more of. He's not making any more land. He's not making any more time. The funny thing about that is it's not exactly true. He's just not making any more of them right now. <laughs> He's making plenty more of them later. Funny thing about your Bible is that the first two chapters and the last two chapters are absolutely perfect. Everything in the middle is messed up. Starting in Genesis 3, things go off the rails, and they pretty much stay off the rails until you get to Revelation 20. 
But by the time you hit Revelation 21, all the crazy stuff is gone. And you're living in the world the way God intended it to be. So Genesis 1 and 2 are the way God wanted it. And Revelation 21 and 22 are the way God intended it. But we screwed up everything between Genesis 3 and Revelation 20. So now that we're done with Revelation 20, we're getting a rare glimpse. Y'all, nowhere in the Bible is heaven talked more about than Revelation 21 and 22. So if you want to know anything about what the eternal state is going to look like, those are your chapters. And that's where we're going to be today. And we're going to talk for the majority of it about this little phrase at the end, there was no more sea. Because that's where I think the meat of this verse is. Even though John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. Now just in passing, one thing I noticed is that this world, is the world that John is describing is completely and totally different than, than this one. But in another sense, it's also very similar. It's similar enough that John recognized the new heaven as, as a heaven and the new earth as an earth. It, it, it was familiar to him, but also was in a sense completely different. Uh, in the sense that its experience is going to be totally and completely different. And what I want us to see today as we talk about the fact that there is no more sea is, is that the sea actually symbolizes a lot in Scripture. And not symbol in the sense of, well, it represents something. Symbol is in it's a reminder to us of several things. And the absence of a sea in the new world is, is actually a big deal. So I want us to just look at three ways, three meanings behind there not being a sea in the new world. So you can look at your sermon handout and see the first one. I started with the simplest one, which is God is planning a world with greater potential. God's planning a world after this one with greater potential. Um, so this should go without saying, but we always misspeak as Christians that if you put your faith in Jesus, that you can live forever in heaven with him when you die. Okay, you're not going to live forever in heaven with Jesus. You're going to live forever on a new earth with Jesus. That's the ultimate plan. That eventually you will have a new body that will live on a new earth if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And, and heaven and earth meet there. The plan is always for, for God to remake this broken, busted world. And He wants you to have a place in it. God is planning that world with greater potential. So when John says there's going to be no more sea, I want you to remember, where was John when the book of Revelation was written? He's on the island of Patmos, right? Patmos was a prison island. He had been exiled for preaching against the Roman imperial cult. He's preaching Christ and Christ crucified. So they can't get John to shut his mouth like any good preacher. So what do they do? Instead of executing him like they've done all the... By the way, out of all the apostles, John's the only one who did not die a martyr's death. He's the only one that died of old age. Rather than execute him, for some reason hitherto unknown to man, they decide to exile him to Patmos. And so all John saw day in and day out on all four sides of the island, just like any island, would be what? Sea. That's all he sees. All day, every day is the sea. Do you think that probably got old? Yes. So I do think there is a sense in which John sees this world and he sits his feet prophetically. He's experiencing this on the ground and he looks around. The first thing he's going to notice that there is not is, I don't see water. 
I'm free. <laughs> there's, the, the, the sea is not functioning as a wall anymore. And there's going to be a lot of script, scripture I quote today. I did not print on your handout because as you can notice, I had to shrink the font to fit on there what I did. So, Revelation 1.9, this is just where John says, I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that's called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. The sea formed his walls. The sea was the walls of his prison cell. Also, think back to what you know about the Old Testament. You remember when Charlton Heston held up his, his staff and the Red Sea parted? Because he had told Pharaoh to let my people go and Pharaoh wouldn't do it. Back when Moses did that during the Exodus. Well, when after the death of the firstborn, the last of the plagues, Pharaoh said, take your people, go. Get out of here. And they walked. And they ended up camping on the shores of the Red Sea. And that's when Pharaoh decided, I don't really want to let these slaves go. I'm going to go and fetch them and bring them back. And when Israel saw Pharaoh coming, what did they do? They lost their minds and started complaining to Moses because they said, you brought us out here to die because they saw Pharaoh coming this way and what behind them? The sea. It was a natural barrier. And that was even Pharaoh's logic. In Exodus 14, 1 through 3, this was planned. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Hiroth, before Migdal in the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. That the sea was a natural barrier that kept them from going further. It stopped them. Do you know that today, in the year of our Lord 2020, the ocean covers 71% of the earth's surface, leaving 100% of humans to live on 29% of the planet. To put those numbers in a little bit more real figures, there are approximately 7.8 billion human beings living on 57 million square miles of habitable land. I did the math last night. If you took every single human being and divided up that land amongst them equally, everybody would end up with about four and a half acres of land. That, that, that's about how it shakes out. Now, four and a half acres of land is not that small of a tract. I mean, it, it's decent sized. But you got to remember, I mean, a lot of that land that humans could live on right now, what's it being used for? We got to eat, don't we? I mean, how many acres of land is tied up growing stuff? Growing trees, growing crops. And by the way, that's habitable land. You can say, wait a minute, there's a lot more land. That, that just seems like there'd be a lot more. If you want to move to Antarctica, you go ahead. You do it. You can't live down there. You will flat die. There is actually a crunch it seems like, man, there's they, not all that much for everybody if, if you spread everybody out. The absence of a sea would drastically increase the livable land on earth and allow us to fulfill God's creation mandate in a way that we can't right now. 
If you recall back in Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We can't really fill the earth right now because there's so much water. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The sea is now and has always been a natural barrier to humanity and takes up a lot of space we'd otherwise occupy. And God's final vision for earth is one in which this limiting factor is removed. Have you ever just felt like living in this world, there are lots of limits and barriers? There are always walls up that keep you from expanding, that keep you from growing, that hold back potential that you feel like you should have? Do you know that God actually wants you to one day reach your full potential as an image bearer? That, that, that's, not, that's not prideful to say. That God intended you. When He created humanity, He created you in His image, did He not? Does God have limits? Does God have limits? So do you think He intends His image bearers to be limited the way we are living in this broken, fallen world right now? now? I'm not saying one day we'll be unlimited like God. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, man, imagine what a fixed, renewed, unbroken human race could do if God not only renewed our bodies and our minds, but renewed the earth and said, now I want you to go do what you should have been doing since Eden. Imagine what the world would look like then. Don't you want to live in that kind of place where God says, I've taken the training wheels off. I've taken the barriers off of human flourishing. This whole planet is here for you. I want you to make it look like I put you in this city. You've seen what Eden looks like go out there and make that look like this. Wouldn't that be a neat world to live in? That's what God's envisioning. That's what God is making. Romans 8.18, Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Josh, that's an odd encouragement telling me that I should be looking forward to a world without a sea. Well, no, I'm not telling you to look forward to a world without a sea. I'm saying look forward to a world that God has created that doesn't work against you. That works for you. That is designed for you. That God is planning a world with greater potential than the one we live in now. Now we got that one out of the way. I also want you to see that God's planning a world of basic beauty and perfection. Now, let me explain what I mean by basic. When I say basic, I don't mean like, y'all ever gone shop for a car? It's one of the most miserable experiences on planet Earth. You go shop for a car, and they've got what they, they call it trim levels. They've got the... Uh, what is it? They call it the touring level, which is like at the very top. That's got the the hardwood paneling on the inside, and it's got the seat warmers, and you know you can you can tell the car where you want to go, and it starts driving for you, and you sneeze, and the lift gate opens, and you know all that stuff. That's the touring level, and then you've got all these other little trim levels all the way down to what that's what's just basic. 
And that, that car cranks when you push the button or turn the key, and that's about it. I don't mean basic in that sense. What basic means is at its core level, at its lowest level, that it's, it's irreducible. It cannot go beyond that. Kind of think, think about an atom. If you remember back in school, atoms are the basic building blocks of the world that you cannot reduce anything lower than an atom. It's the lowest cohesive unit you can get. What is the basic form of this creation? This world that we live in right now. Stop and think about it. What is the basic form of this creation? Well, let's go back and let's look. It's going to have to do with the sea. I'll go ahead and tell you. The sea makes its first appearance in Genesis 1. You can probably hear the verse in your head. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Sounds like a sea to me, doesn't it? Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And by the way, I just want you to notice, look at verse 3, because we're going we're to parallel this in just a second. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. God didn't say the darkness was good, did he? He just saw the light and said the light was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. And let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and morning were the second day. So God takes this, this sea... That's the first thing he made, and he divides it out and makes some room in the middle. You got water down here, and you got water up there, and he's hollowed it out with some space in the middle. And then he takes a break. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. When God created the world... here's. If you read it in Hebrew, when it says the, the, the earth was form, without form and void, the words in Hebrew are tohu wabohu. That sounds fun, doesn't it? Just, just kind of hum that to yourself going down the road. Tohu wabohu. Tohu wabohu. It, it, it's fun. It kind of rolls off the tongue. Tohu in Hebrew is a word. It means formless. It means what the Plato is when you dump it out of the bucket. It hadn't been made into anything yet. It's just... That's the technical meaning of the word tohu. Bohu, on the other hand, is not a word. It just rhymes with tohu. So why did, why did Moses write that there? For the same reason in English we say the words, it was just muck and guck out there. That's the way my college professor actually translated this. He said it's the best way to do it. Because you know what muck means. Muck is a word. Guck is not a word, but you know what it means when you put it next to guck. It just means all of it's just... Blah. The earth was muck and guck. 
God created all the basic building blocks of everything out of nothing and it was chaos. And then what does God start doing? God starts forming it and turning it into something. The basic building blocks of this world were chaotic when God created them. And honestly, when you stop and think about it, this pattern makes sense when you look at it because God does it, God does it. God does it for the rest of scripture. God calls the order of the world out of the chaos of its initial creation. God takes humanity and expects us to bring chaos or, or bring uh, order out of the chaotic world outside Eden. Remember, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. In Genesis 28, what kind of thing do you subdue? Do you subdue something that's tame or do you subdue something that's wild? You subdue something that's wild, right? Well, Josh, I, I thought the original world was perfect. It was perfectly what God intended it to be. God plants the garden in Eden, puts Adam and Eve in it, and then tells them to go subdue the rest of the world and make it look like that. So see, God expects them to be like Him in His image and bring order out of chaos. God calls righteous Noah out of a chaotic and rebellious humanity to build something new. God calls Abram out of Ur to begin the Abrahamic covenant and produce a special people calling them out of an otherwise chaotic humanity. God calls David, beginning the Davidic covenant, and brings order to a chaotic nation. God sent Jesus, fulfilling the Davidic covenant, and brought an ordered people, us, out of chaotic humanity, both Jew and Gentile. God calls us as believers to be salt and light in the world, right? And when he told us to pray, he said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. This earth is chaos. And he calls us to bring order out of it. Being salt and light. The curse itself. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree, the curse itself is a reminder of the basic form of this world. Chaos. Because listen to what God said. To Adam in Genesis 3, 17 and 19. To Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, this hurts to read every time I read it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. But thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Remember the barriers and the limits that I told you? there is on creation that it's not responding to us the way it's supposed to. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for what? Dust you are. Into dust you shall return. That God reminded Adam, Adam, don't forget. Before I pulled you out of this ground, you were dust. Before I breathed into you, you were dirt. And because you sinned, because you listened to a snake instead of the God that made you, that breath is not going to stay in your body. Not forever. And when it leaves, you will do what we call decay. 
which means return to dust. I mean, have you ever thought about it? We don't think about death like that, but that's what it is. It's the returning of these human bodies to the state that we were in before any of this started. Dust. That's our most basic form. The only reason we exist the way we do is because God made us something else. All of creation is like that. All of creation is dust. And if not for God holding it together, that's what it would be. The sea, as we see it now, every time we look at it, we're reminded, hey, this world was chaos at one point, and God brought it together into order and beauty and separated it all out and made it the work of art that it is. And then God called us out of the dust and breathed His life into us and we became living beings and we gained identity and a purpose and a soul and a rational mind and the ability to think and the ability to image God and to be more than any other beast of the field that He called us to rule over the earth and subdue it. But because we rebelled against Him, we returned to what we were at the beginning. And guess what? The rest of creation was subjected to that along with us. All of it's returning to dust. All of it's corrupting. All of it's falling apart. Ask any physicist, particularly astrophysicist. Have y'all ever heard the phrase, the heat death of the universe? Y'all ever heard about this? It's inevitable. It is scientifically verifiable and provable that the universe has got a shelf life. Mathematically. That atoms are constantly in motion. But y'all ever played a... Air hockey. Y'all ever play that? Little table with the air coming out? You know, if you drop a puck on that thing, eventually it will stand still. Eventually the energy runs out. But if you hit that thing, it goes... <laughs> but to get the energy to do that, you had to eat food. And your body had to process it. And you spent some energy to move that puck. But eventually you're going to have to keep eating and you're going to have to keep making energy to function. Everything requires energy from something, but eventually there's not enough energy to keep anything moving. Eventually it all grinds to a halt. Eventually the sun burns out. Eventually Alpha Centauri burns out. They don't burn forever. There's fuel. The sun runs on nuclear fusion and fission. But eventually there are not enough atoms for it to keep burning. It burns out. Eventually every star burns out. Gets sucked into a black hole and condensed down into nothing. Eventually the universe burns out. It Aren't y'all depressed now? My point is just that even atheistic scientists admit this world is reducing itself back to nothing. They don't know where the something came from that is reducing to nothing. We do. But they can agree that it's reverting to nothingness. But the new humanity, the new creation is not that way. 1 Corinthians 15, 42-49 says this, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body, this dust body, is sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. 
It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. And so it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Paul's talking about Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. Second man's the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Y'all, does Jesus ever have to worry about reducing back to dust? Does Jesus ever have to worry about his, his resurrected body falling apart? Does Jesus ever have to worry about life ending for him? Guess what? Neither does anybody who belongs to him. We die and decay and turn to dust because we're children of Adam. But in the resurrection, we don't fear any of that because we're children of God. As we were like Adam, so one day we will be like Jesus. That the current corruption and disintegration of this current world doesn't apply anymore. The sea is a reminder of that when we look out there that the basic form of this world is chaos. One day that sea will be gone because the new world won't have a basic form of chaos. It'll have a basic form of beauty and irreducible perfection. God's not calling order out of any chaos because there won't be any chaos anymore. The new creation doesn't groan for renewal. Romans 8, 19-23. The earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Sounds a lot like the heat death of the universe, right? Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. That right now, every single one of us is stuck on this earth with a body that is breaking down. And my mama looked at me this last week and said, are you going bald? I said, what? Yes. Amen. I see that hand. What was that Billy Graham used to say? I see that hand. She said, you're thinning a little bit right here. And I said, you blind? She said, no. I'm not. I'm 31 and when I kneel down to pick up a set of blocks, my knees pop. Oh yeah, just wait. And you know what? It ain't going to get any better. It's not going to get any better. You can be strong as an ox one day and feel like an ox is sitting on you the next. In the grand scheme of things, a human lifespan is not all that long. Y'all, every single one of us turns a little bit more into dust every single day. Just a little bit. It's the reason Proverbs says it'd be, it'd be wise to think about the brevity of life. That this body that you're sitting in here right now, 
feels great today, maybe. Might not tomorrow. And it'll feel a little less so the next day. And do you know what? All of creation feels that way. This is not the way it was supposed to be. This basic, chaotic world, because of sin, is reverting to that. But in Revelation 21, that all goes away. And next week, you're going you're gonna to see what happens. You see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. God doesn't fashion it out of the dust. God doesn't build it out of dirt. God doesn't push the sea out of the way to make room for it. It just is. And it will always be. It'll never decay. It'll never rust. I seem to recall somebody saying that's where you should store up your treasure because moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. That's where all that happens. Wouldn't you love to have that to look forward to? What's the application of this, y'all? You probably want, Josh, that's all neat to think about. What's the application of that? Look forward to it. That's the application. God intends this book to be an encouragement. Have you ever felt more like the world is falling apart than you have in 2020? Nothing makes sense right now. There's a world that will never feel like 2020. And that can belong to you if you belong to Jesus. God's planning a world whose basic form is beauty and perfection. And then finally, God's planning a world of safety and security. So the sea forms natural limits and barriers to human flourishing. The sea is a reminder of the basic chaotic form of this world. And the sea is also quite dangerous. Literally and symbolically. That throughout scripture the sea has been a symbol and actual danger. Probably the, the most memorable time the sea was a danger was also in Genesis. You know, studying this book and preaching through it with you guys. Everybody always says you can't understand Revelation if you don't study Daniel. I think you can't understand Revelation if you don't study Genesis. I think Genesis is the book that has the most to do with Revelation. Genesis 7, 7 through 12. So Noah, remember that guy? With his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. You remember what I just read from Genesis where it says God pushed the waters out of the way and made room for creation? He pushed some of them up and he pushed some of them down. It's like he took his hands off and let the waters up here come down and the waters down here go up. That's what the flood was. It wasn't just rain. The rain came down and rain came down and the floods came up. You know, y'all, there you go. 
song is actually a great teaching method. It's true. So the sea played a role in the, cre- the destruction of creation via the flood. God released all the boundaries He'd set for His creation. The waters above the firmament came down as a downpour. The fountains of the deep were broken up below the earth. The sea came up to cover the earth. And by the way, all of this could happen again if not for one thing. Why didn't that happen again? God promised He wasn't going to, right? But He promised He wouldn't. Does that mean He couldn't? He won't. I'm not saying doubt his word. I'm just saying when you look out at the sea, that's a reminder. Hey, there's enough water out there, he could do some damage. He's done it before. And I don't feel bad making that argument because Peter did the same thing. Peter said, hey, they forget that God did this with the ocean one time. He could do it with something else the second time. It felt like it. The sea is a reminder of the, the constant danger of destruction that this world is in. Every day we take a breath is patience from God. (laughs) I mean, if God was, you say, well, I just wish God would treat us fairly. That ain't what you want. You don't want God to treat us fair. You want God to give us mercy. If God treated us fair, we'd be a greasy spot. (laughs) How about this? God actively, constantly intervenes to prevent the destruction of this world by the sea. Job 38, 8 through 11. Or who shut in the sea with its doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors? When I said, this far you may come, but no further, and here your proud waves must stop. You know the reason we're not a coastal city? Because God said you're not going to be a coastal city. He drew a line and said, Ocean, you don't go no farther. That's why. Other sea-related dangers in Scripture. In Revelation 13.1, the beast, the one we know as the Antichrist, is described as the beast out of the sea. In Psalm 18, God delivers David from his enemies. Enemies characterized as the sea because of their violence and rage. In Matthew 8, 23-27, Jesus calms the sea and His disciples fear and they're in awe that it obeys Him. The sea is never a comforting figure in Scripture. It's always a symbol of danger and things that could go wrong, things that are uncontrollable. If you go read, I'm, I'm going off the cuff right now, I just thought of another one. If you go to James 1, And it talks about the man who asks God for things but doubts Him. It says he's like a man being tossed about by the sea. Unstable, unpredictable, untrustworthy because the sea doesn't listen to anybody whose name isn't Jesus. For that matter, really neither does the rest of creation. But Jesus gets up. Master, come up here. Don't you know we're perishing? And Jesus is still wiping the sleep crusties out of his eyes. I always imagine Jesus kind of nap nap style shuffling out of the bottom of the boat because that's what he was doing. Has anybody ever yelled at you to wake up and go somewhere in a hurry? How quickly are you moving when they do that? You kind of stumble. 
to the door. I just imagine Jesus kind of is real bright. I've been taking a nap. I was sleeping real good because I hadn't been worried at all. Then he kind of groggily walks up to the deck and goes, Hush! You guys need to leave me alone and have some faith. I'm going back to sleep. It's not even a big deal to him. He's not afraid of it. Not only does he own it, he runs it. Have y'all ever been on a boat far enough away from the land that you realize if something goes south, I got no hope? Yes. I heard that. Yes. Heard somebody say, that's why I don't go out there. Yep. And by the way, a lot of the folks on that boat with Jesus were fishermen. If anybody was used to the sea, they were. They were terrified by it. Because of sin, this creation, not just the sea, but all of this creation, because of sin, this creation is violent, unpredictable, and unyielding. Have you ever just been punched in the gut by something in this world out of nowhere? And it just feels like there's no rhyme or no reason. Anything and anybody that we love or care about can be gone just like that. And it feels like you can't just do anything about it. That it's wild and it's unpredictable and it's violent and it's unyielding just like the sea. That's because of sin. I'm not talking about specific sin. I'm not saying that someone or something you love was taken away because of your or their specific sin. I'm saying, y'all, sometimes bad things happen in this world just because it's a fallen world and there's not a better explanation for it than that. I've been called to people's houses when they've lost a loved one and had someone ask, Josh, why? And my honest to God answer is, I don't know. If I told you I did know, I'd be lying. But I can tell you this, sometimes things happen in this world just because it's a fallen world. And just because until Jesus comes back, death and destruction reign here. But there's a day coming when under the rule of King Jesus we won't have to fear the new creation. We won't have to fear violence and unpredictability. Isaiah 11, 6-9 says, listen to this. This is wild, y'all. The wolf also will dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. I'm imagining a world where there's a panther running around outside digging in my backyard and I send little three-year-old Margaret out there to get her and hey Margaret will you tell that thing to leave please now today that would be called child abuse then it would be called telling the cat to shoot the cow and the bear shall graze the young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, oh, as the waters cover the sea. 
It's almost like the sea has moved out of the way to make room for something else. Then finally, I jumped ahead in Revelation just to pull this verse. There shall be no night there. Revelation 22.5 They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. There's not going to be an end to it, y'all. It's not ever going to give way. Something's never going to destroy it. Something's never going to tarnish it. That it's just going to continue in perfection and goodness in perpetuity. No more fear. No more unpredictability. No more destruction. No more death. Do you want that? Is that the kind of world you'd rather live in? Well, I've got good news for you. You can. You can have that guaranteed. All you've got to do is be 100 absolutely perfect. No sin whatsoever. Past, present, or future. Unfortunately, that's not possible for you. But someone has done it for you. His name is Jesus. He came and He lived a perfect life from childhood all the way to His crucifixion. Never sinned. Never messed up. Not even once. And then He died on the cross in your place for your sins. And today He offers you His righteousness and takes your sin upon Himself if you will just come to Him in repentance and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me what Jesus did is enough for me. And they buried Him because He died. And three days later, He rose again. And Jesus promises you that if you come and you put your faith in Him, then just like He rose, one day you'll rise. Death will not have the final word over you just like it did not have the final word over Him. And you have the promise that this fallen, broken, disintegrating, corrupting, returning to dust, heat death of the universe world is not your only home. You have a world whose basic form is beauty and perfection and no fear, no destruction of great potential beyond anything you can imagine this world to ever have. That world can be your home. All you have to do is trust Jesus. So Miss Joyce is going to come lead us in a couple verses of an invitation hymn. And I am going to put on my mask and come down here. And we are going to sing, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. And if you need to give your life to Christ today, uh, just kind of identify yourself. Stick your hand in the air and I'll, I'll see you after church. We'll walk outside and we'll talk. And uh, I'll be glad to have that conversation with you. So let's pray and then we'll have us an invitation here.